the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World Episode 4 The Great Seljuk Empire We now introduce a people of the world who we have not spoken of before, but who are a very important ethnic group on today's planet. They are the Turkic peoples, who are most obviously recognised in today's world as the dominant ethnicity of the modern nation of Turkey. We also see the reference in the name of the country Turkmenistan, However, the populations of other countries such as Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan can be described largely as Turkic. And this is not surprising considering their proximity to the Eurasian steppe, the vast grasslands of the Eurasian landmass that stretch from the far east across the southern borderlands of Russia into the central lands of Eastern Europe. The origin of Turkic people is a matter for debate and this is mainly because the people of the Eurasian steppe were somewhat nomadic in nature throughout their history and as such there are very little in the way of first-hand records of their culture and especially their languages. The Turkic language group is the binding factor of the Turkic people historically. The easiest way to describe the history of the Turkic language is to say that we are somewhat confident that they are one of a group of language families that emanate from the steppelands between the Caspian Sea and the Far East and with particular closeness at some point with the Mongolic languages due to the presence of loanwords between the two. Many scholars debate the exact origin though. Genetic studies point towards connections between Turkic speakers and peoples mentioned in historical literature, including the historical Mongolic peoples. So we know that the two language families had to have had close connections. This means that some historians suggest that the earliest known Turkic speakers could have had a close relationship with societies such as the Tsiongnu, who we know to have been a nomadic steppe land rival to the Han dynasty of China around the turn of the first millennium. The Tier Lu people are believed to be one of the first identifiably Turkic cultures and they emerged from the remnants of the Tsiongnu Empire. Turkic peoples may have started migrating westwards 
in the typically fluid westward manner of many steppe cultures looking for fertile lands. And this could have been simultaneous to the Hunnic migrations, causing historians to scrutinise how close the relationship between the Huns and the Turks was, and whether Hunnic culture was more closely linked to Turkic cultures than others. Going forward to the 6th century and the Tiola people had come under the rule of the Roran Khaganate. The Roran Khaganate was linked to Mongolic culture and their use of the word Khagan may have originated from a peoples called the Tsiangbei. The Tsiangbei were a nomadic peoples who were somewhat contemporary to the Xiongnu and living to their east. We spoke about their influence on the political situations of the Far East during Volume 3 in our episodes about China. A Khagan is equivalent to an emperor, and so a Khaganate is equivalent to an empire. So the Rurans, who were a Mongolic people, had managed to gain power over some of their neighbours, including the Tielu, and formed their own Khaganate, which ruled over much of the lands of the eastern steppe. A Turkic chieftain called Bumin rebelled against Ruran overlords and established Turkic independence in the middle of the 6th century. He declared himself Kargan, and so the first Turkic Kharganate was born. And due to the nomadic nature of the steppe cultures, the Turkic Kharganate quickly expanded to gain control over vast amounts of steppe lands. The people of the Turkic Khaganate are distinguished from other Turkic peoples by being referred to as Gurkturks. Perhaps unsurprisingly though, and as we are often familiar with, the swift vastness of the Khaganate led to fractures and a civil war broke out which led to a split down the middle of the Khaganate. The eastern Turkic Khaganate was ultimately absorbed by the Tang dynasty of China during the 7th century. The western Turkic Khaganate likely shared a border with the fast-expanding Rashidun Caliphate to the south. The western Turkic Khaganate continued to exist in various forms while the Islamic caliphates to the south continued to rise in power and influence as it went through Umayyad and Abbasid rule. We tend to look at the western Turkic Khaganate as a place where a distinguishable group called the Ohuz Turks emerged and it was during the 8th century that they established an autonomous state that was governed by Yabku who is somewhat similar to a viceroy. This Ohuz Yabhu state existed in the lands between the Caspian Sea and the Aral Sea. The Ohuz would have problems with their Turkic cousins in the lands to their north, who were the Khazars. But due to having a good political relationship with the Kievan Raus, a people from northeast Europe who were migrating southwards into the lands of the modern country of Ukraine, the Oz would be able to maintain a strong independent presence in their lands. In the meantime, the Abbasid dynasty had gradually 
lost control of his Islamic caliphate and were deposed by the Buyids, who controlled the caliphate, using the Abbasid rulers to maintain the traditional identity of the empire, or at least what was left of it. The 11th century So this brings our story into the 11th century with the Abbasid Caliphate now under the rule of the Buyid dynasty and the Oz Yabud state existing in the lands to its northeast. So we have reached a point in the story where we left it last week and we now have tracked the origin of the Oz Turks. After the Turks had come into contact with the Arab Muslims for the first time, they would discover themselves being conscripted into the military service for the Muslims, and so began the presence of a Turkic warrior slave class within the Abbasid Caliphate. This tradition would continue even as the Abbasid Caliphate fragmented, as the various factions would also use Turks to serve among their ranks the Abbasid Caliphate was fundamentally centred in the lands of Iraq during their tenure. During the 9th century, they allowed control of the lands of Khorasan, which we more familiarly know as roughly the modern country of Iran, to a trusted ally called the Tahirid dynasty. The Tahirids remained loyal to the Abbasids. Towards the end of the same century, another dynasty called the Safarids from the Hindu Kush overthrew the Tahirids and took control of Khorasan away from the Abbasids. The Abbasids would never gain control of these lands again. In the year 900, another dynasty called the Samanids overthrew the Safarids at the Battle of Bauch. All of these dynasties, as well as the Abbasids, were predominantly Sunni Muslims. We have already discovered that the Shia Muslim Boyid dynasty gained control of Baghdad during the 10th century and the Abbasids were simply puppet rulers from this point on. However, if we turn back to Khorasan, then yet another Sunni Islam Persian dynasty called the Ghaznavids started to take control of the lands occupied by the Samanids at the end of the 10th century. The significance of the Ghaznavids is that although they were Persianized in their culture and although they were Muslims, there was Turkic blood in their lineage. So we can feel very confident in the definite integration of Turkic people into the borderlands of the Islamic emirates and sultanates with evidence of their conversion to Islam in some cases. The Ghaznavids also used Turkic slave labour within their military, which, as we already know, was a common practice for Persian and Arab Muslim emirates and sultanates during this period of history. So for the benefit of our story, by the early 11th century, we can recognise three major political entities. The Abbasids of Iraq, who were under the control of the Western Iranian dynasty called the Buyids, the Turkic peoples of the Oz Yabhu state, based in the lands between the Caspian and Aral Seas, and there was also the Persianized Turkic Sunni Islam dynasty called the Ghaznavids, 
based in the lands of Khorasan. This is the political landscape that existed before the rise of the Seljuk Turks, the subject of today's episode. The Seljuk Turks take their name from an individual called Seljuk, a highly influential warrior who originated in the lands of the Oz Yabhu state. Seljuk was culturally very Turkic, despite the fact that many other Turks, such as the Ghaznavids, had become Persianized and Islamized by this time. The religion of the Oz Turks would have been Tengrism, which was a tolerant belief system based on the theory that the sky god Tengri created the universe, and although ancestors could become deified, it is seen as a monotheistic religion. We can feel confident that Seljuk was born into a Tengrist belief system. We cannot be sure why, but we are aware that Seljuk migrated from his homelands eastwards to the city of Jand in Transoxania, east of the Aral Sea. Seljuk and his followers converted to Islam while in Jand, and this put him at odds with the Oz Turks. We are aware that during the conflicts between the Seljuk Turks and the non-believing Oz Turks, Seljuk's son, Mikhail, was killed. We cannot be sure when Seljuk himself died, but it is believed to be in the early years of the 11th century and he is thought to have been at least a 100 years old. During this period, the city of Jand was in the lands of the Karakhanid Khaganate, another Turkic peoples. The Karakhanid Khaganate had been Islamized during the previous century, so the Seljuk Turks were comfortable in these new lands. The Karakhanid Khaganate was not particularly stable as a political entity, though, with civil warfare active and conflict with their neighbours to the south, the Ghaznavids. Two sons of Mikhail, and therefore sons of Seljuk, named Tagre and Tugril, loyally served the Karakhanid Khaganate in their conflicts with the Ghaznavids. The two brothers led an army south into Ghaznavid territory in the year 1040 and engaged in battle with them at the Battle of Dandanakan. The brothers would lead the Seljuks to victory, scoring a crushing defeat of the Ghaznavids and subsequently occupying large amounts of Ghaznavid territory and this was the beginnings of the Seljuk Turkic Empire. What followed was a period of Seljuk consolidation of the lands and expansion of territory by Tuhril Bey. He would instate his brother Chagra as the governor of Khorasan and he would defend these lands from Ghaznavid attempts to reclaim their lost lands. Tuhril himself would become the first sultan of the Seljuk Empire and the beginnings of significant Turkmen rule in Islamic lands had now begun. The phrase Turkmen often refers to a Turkic person who is a descendant of the Oz Turks and we see the use of this reference in the name of the country Turkmenistan. Tukhril 
gathered the Caspian Sea coastal lands of northern Iran, and things started looking ominous for the Buyids as they observed this new dynasty gathering power around its lands and the Abbasids would see an opportunity to make an alliance with Tughril in a bid to break the shackles of their Buyid overlords. So Tughril would turn his attentions towards the city of Baghdad. The Fatimids Now, if we go back to our story of the Abbasids, then you may remember that we mentioned the emergence to power of an Ismaili Shia Muslim dynasty in North Africa called the Fatimids. A Fatimid caliphate emerged during the 10th century while the Abbasids were still somewhat powerful from the new heartlands of Islamic culture in Iraq. The Fatimids were ideological rivals of the Sunni Islam Abbasids, so we can believe that the ultimate goal of the Fatimids was to take control of the entire Muslim caliphate and promote their own style of Islam. In the latter half of the 10th century, the Fatimids had secured the whole of North Africa following a dramatic weakening of the Abbasid Caliphate and their subjugation by the Buyids, which we have spoken of many times already. In 969, the Fatimids took Egypt from the Ishidids, who ruled Egypt under the Abbasid flag. The Fatimids quickly built the city of Cairo and made it their capital and from there they could plan to advance into Asiatic lands. Egypt had a good period of prosperity under the Fatimids. This prosperity was desperately needed in Jerusalem too, a city that had become neglected since the demise of the Abbasids. When the Fatimids took control of Jerusalem too, their Shia brand of Islam left the Sunni pilgrims alienated from the holy city. As we are aware, Many of the Arab and Persian dynasties enjoyed the use of Turkic slaves among their military ranks. The Turkic slaves are also referred to as Mamluks, which is derived from an Arabic word for a person who is owned or a slave. The Mamluks are such a significant part of history that they begin to have a distinct entity in their own right from this period onwards. The Fatimids utilised Berbers as slave military and also sub-Saharan Africans otherwise referred to in historical documents as Black Africans as slave military which affirms the growing trade links being utilised between North Africa and sub-Saharan Africa. Although this sounds like a great thing for the Fatimids to have all of these different ethnic resources at their disposal The reality is that all slave military understood their own identity, so when the Fatimid Caliphate found that they were victims of drought and subsequent famine, not only would this cause dissent between the slaves and the Fatimids, but it would also create conflict between the ethnic slave groups with each other. So, for example, if the Mamluks believed that the sub-Saharan Africans were receiving better treatment than themselves, then this could lead to conflict between the two parties. If any one ethnicity were gaining more political sway over another, then this could also lead to conflict or alliances between slaves against other slaves. So this would bring instability 
to the thus far successful Fatimid Caliphate while the 11th century progressed. Back in the Middle East, and we are aware that the dwindling Abbasids reached out to the Seljuk Turks for help to overcome the oppression of the Buyids, who had controlled the Abbasid Caliphate for around the last 100 years. Tukril Bey, the Seljuk Sultan, had enjoyed great success in expanding his empire throughout the lands of Iran. A military commander for the Buyids in their bid to maintain the order of the city of Baghdad in the year 1055 was a Mamluk, or a Turkic slave soldier, called Al-Baziziri. When Tukril successfully entered Baghdad in December 1055, Al-Baziziri fled west towards Syria, which was under the control of the Fatimid Caliphate. The Fatimids were suitably concerned and decided that they would allow al-Baziziri the control of some lands of inland Syria in the hope that he could keep the rampant Seljuks from expanding their threat to Fatimid territory in the Levant. Despite the Seljuks being of Turkic origin, the expansion of Turks throughout the Middle East meant that they would have many different ethnic identities by this time, and many Turkic people of the Middle East chose to support al-Baziziri, while he looked to rebuild his army and his reputation in Syria, meaning that they would abandon their new Seljuk rulers and head west from Iraq to Syria in order to join al-Baziziri. This was a bit of a concern for Tuhril and the Seljuks who would initially attempt to reach a diplomatic resolution with al-Baziziri during the year 1058. By December of the same year, after defying the Seljuks, al-Baziziri, financially supported by the Fatimids, successfully took Baghdad back from the Seljuks. The Seljuks continued to try to negotiate with al-Baziziri, clearly realising his great talents. But al-Baziziri was clearly a man with deeply held Seljuk resentment and continued to act with defiance. Tukril had no choice but to run al-Baziziri out of Baghdad again in 1059, before al-Baziziri was eventually killed in a battle near the city of Kufa by a Seljuk army, his head being brought back to Tukril in Baghdad as a symbol of final victory. Tukril Bey, the first and great sultan of the Seljuk Turks, died in 1063 and he was succeeded by his nephew, a son of Chahrebeg called Muhammad ibn Dawud Shakri, better known to history as Alep Arsalan, his honorific title. Alep Arsalan had to defend off the claims of others before he could declare himself as the new sultan, and he would appoint the services of a trusted vizier to aid him in his governance of the empire, and the vizier became known to history as Nizam al-Muluk. Once Alep Arsalan was able to consolidate his position of the Sultan of the Empire, he would move to further expand Seljuk influence in the directions of Transoxania and Georgia. 
he would also have to take into serious consideration the sentiments of the Shia Muslim Fatimid Caliphate who had watched the Shia Muslim Boyids get removed from power in Iraq in favour of the Sunni Muslim Seljuks. All of these moves and intentions only served to unnerve the Byzantines who have managed to consolidate the whole of Anatolia since the dramatic weakening of the Abbasids during the previous century. Seljuk influence over Armenia and Georgia and ambitions towards the Levantine lands of the Fatimids would bring the Seljuks too close to Byzantine interests and tensions between the two entities would rise. The Seljuks managed to negotiate with the Byzantines and felt confident enough to concentrate more resources against the Fatimids as a consequence. However, the Byzantine Emperor Romanos IV had gathered a huge army while Seljuk attentions were elsewhere and they were threatening the Armenian interests of the Seljuks. Alep Arsalan decided that he needed to act militarily against the Byzantines and the result was the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. We will talk in more detail about the Byzantines in future episodes and concentrate particularly on this battle too. The Battle of Manzikert had far-reaching consequences for the immediate future of this area of the world and also for the wider future relationship between Muslims and Christians, which is still politically relevant to this very day. The Byzantines had originated and evolved from the Eastern Roman Empire and one of its better well-known ancestral emperors being Constantine the Great, a great figurehead for Christianity and a supporter of the construction of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. With the Arab Muslim conquest of Jerusalem and even the Fatimid conquest from the Abbasids, there was not a huge concern for the Christians in Jerusalem, who appeared to be tolerated and allowed to worship. The victory of the Seljuks at Manzikert marked the beginning of Turkic expansion into Anatolia and a subsequent move to control all of the lands of the Levant, which ultimately exposed a threat to European culture enough that a rallying cry could be heard throughout Europe to reclaim Middle Eastern lands, and these campaigns have come down to us as the Crusades. The Byzantine Emperor Romanos IV was captured by Alep Arsalan at the Battle of Manzikert. Romanos was ransomed back to the Byzantines, but by this time his personal position had been compromised and he was imprisoned, blinded and subsequently died a captive of a rival Byzantine family who claimed the Byzantine throne for themselves. Alep Arsalan's own great glory was short-lived as it was in the following year that he was assassinated by a captive in the east of Seljuk territory at the young age of 42. Later years Turkmen is a term generally used to describe Turkic peoples of Oğuz origin to distinguish them from other Turks. So the Seljuks can be described as Turkmen or of Turkmen origin. This term is apparent in our name for the modern country of Turkmenistan. Turkic can describe anything relating to the culture or language of all historical Turks and I often try to avoid using the term 
Turkish, unless I'm attributing something to the modern country of Turkey, although it is not incorrect to use Turkish in relation to anything Turkic. So the Seljuk Turks who invaded Anatolia can be correctly described as Turkmen, and these Turkmen would attempt to take their own slice of land for themselves in Anatolian territory, which were those lands that formerly belonged to the Byzantines. The people of Anatolia were Greek speakers and seen by Arabs as Roman in origin. And as such, these people were referred to by their Muslim conquerors as the Rum. So when the Turkmen had spread out and interspersed among the population of Anatolia, an estranged Turk who was in command of the Turkmen outside of the boundaries of Seljuk influence was Suleiman ibn Kutalmish whose father had attempted to become the sultan of the Seljuk Empire in years gone by. Suleiman would seize the opportunity to advance into Anatolia and gain control of the newly Turkic territories there, declaring himself as the sultan of Rum, directly referencing the Rum population of Byzantine origin who lived there. He would establish a capital city at Nikia which we know to have been a significant city in the story of the development of Roman Christianity. Rum would declare itself independent from the rest of the empire. The Seljuk Empire had successfully pushed the Fatimids out of the Levant and Jerusalem, however. Jerusalem was the site of significant bloodshed between differing Muslim factions for a number of years, and the Jews and Christians who lived there suffered as a consequence. A significant factor in the origins of the First Crusade. Neither the Seljuks or the Fatimids were willing to give up on their claims to Jerusalem. Seljuk influence did extend down the western Arabian coast to encompass the lands of the Hejaz now, the spiritual home of the Muslims that contains Mecca and Medina. The Abbasid Caliphs remained in office in name to protect the bloodline link to the original family of the Prophet Muhammad. Alip Arsalan's trusted vizier, Nizam al-Muluk, had stayed in office. Nizam al-Muluk himself was a Persian by heritage, as opposed to Alip Arslan and his young successor as Sultan of the Seljuk Empire, Malik Shah, who were both of Turkmen heritage. Nizam al-Muluk was an incredibly capable vizier and responsible for much of the political success of the Seljuk Empire, with some claiming that his motivation was to demonstrate that the Persian ethnicity was the descendant of great peoples of empires of the past, such as the Achaemenids and the Sasanians, and the true reason for the success of the Seljuk Empire, giving great political counsel to their less historically impressive Turkmen rulers possibly perceived as descendants of barbarian nomads. The downfall of Nizam al-Muluk is particularly interesting. Nizam was a staunch Sunni Muslim and opposed to what he perceived to be the threat of Shia Muslim ideas, possibly inflamed by a disapproval of the Buyids who had previously held sway over the Abbasid Caliphate. 
His literal works have been held in high esteem by Sunni Muslims since his lifetime as a consequence. Another Persian man called Hassan Isaba had migrated to Fatimid, Egypt in the 1070s, possibly due to his own staunch affiliation with Shia Islam and possibly because he was concerned about whether his own life was under threat from the influence of the anti-Shia Nisam al-Muluk. While in Fatimid, Egypt, Hassan's popularity waned to the point where he fled the country and headed back northwards into Seljuk territory. Hassan remained close to his cause of promoting Shia Islam and established a remote mountain fortress at a place called Alamut, just south of the Caspian Sea in Iranian lands. From here, Hassan would extend his Nizari Ismaili brand of Shia Islam over many local people, establishing an area of power from within the Seljuk Empire. This was a cause for concern for the Seljuks. Some have suggested that Hassan was a master propagandist and may even have learned how to influence individuals while in Egypt by making them eat cannabis, which was referred to as hashish, a term still commonly known in the English-speaking world. This would lead to the Fatimids referring to them as hashashins. Under Hassan's influence, brainwashed individuals would be sent on suicidal missions in the name of Nizari Ismaili, Shia Islam, to kill important opponents of their religious order, such as Sunni Muslims. It is suggested in text that one of Hassan's Hashashins successfully murdered Nisam al-Mulik while he was travelling within the empire. The Hashashins continued this practice of very personal murders long after the lifetime of Hassan Isabah. Their name has been anglicised as assassins, and this is the origin of the word assassin, and why we call such individual murders assassinations. The death of Nisam al-Muluk signalled the end of the zenith of Seljuk power. His political and military reforms helped to maintain the stability and power of the Seljuk Empire. Christian crusaders, summoned by the injured Byzantines, posed a threat to all Muslim nations and successfully took control of the Rum capital of Nicaea before successfully marching onto the important cities of Edessa, Antioch and Jerusalem. The Byzantines took back some lands of western Anatolia, forcing the Rum Turks eastwards, and the crusaders established states in the Levant, pushing the Seljuks eastwards. Part of the initial success of the Crusaders in far-off Asiatic lands was the fact that the Muslim states were in constant conflict with each other. The Rum Turks continued their conflicts with the Seljuk Turks. Another Anatolian entity called the Danishmen Turks rose in opposition to both the Rum and the Seljuks. So even though the Seljuks were losing territory to the Crusaders, they would also lose Aleppo to the Danishmens during the 12th century. The Zengids were able to take back control of Aleppo on behalf of the Seljuks in 1128, but there was a significant amount of autonomy 
existing in Western Seljuk lands that did not exist previously. So with subject rulers in the West, the Seljuks would look eastwards to the rebellious factions that were readily causing disturbances in Greater Khorasan. The Malik, or governor of Khorasan, at the start of the 12th century was a man called Ahmed Sanjar and he became the sultan of the eastern lands of the Seljuk Empire in 1118. Conflict with the sultan of the western lands only served to further debilitate the empire further, so the competition was just too fierce for the Seljuks to be able to manage their way through it all. Chitan peoples from the area of Manchuria in the lands of northeast China had migrated westwards to escape the Jin dynasty of China, and they had established an empire in Central Asia called the Karachitai. The Karachitai would clash with the Karahanids, who were under the suzerainty of the Seljuks in those very lands that the Karachitai wanted to occupy. Inevitably, the Seljuks met the Karachitai in battle in 1141 at the Battle of Katwan, and were defeated. Karachitai would gain control of the Karahani Khaganate and the neighbouring Khwarazm, lands between the two modern countries of Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. The Abbasids had grown tired of their increasingly struggling Seljuk overlords and were now looking to remove Baghdad from Seljuk influence after years of resentment. The Abbasids were able to resist the siege imposed upon it by the Seljuks and so the Seljuk influence over the Abbasid Caliphate was removed due to the Seljuks having more pressing issues from its many neighbouring rivals. Sultan Ahmad Sanjar died in 1157 with a reputation for being a strong sultan in the face of many challenges, but his task was thankless as the walls were simply closing in on the Seljuks during his reign and there were far too many enemies to repel. In the 1170s, the Khwarazmians started to refuse to pay tribute to the Karachitai after a series of conflicts between the two. The Khwarazmians broke free from Karachitai suzerainty and expanded their lands into Iran, which simply became disputed territory since the death of Ahmad Sanjar, and this really marked the end of the Seljuk Empire as a political entity. Okay, so that was the end of the power of the Seljuk Turks. And it's one of those episodes which uh, we really don't um, know a great deal about in Western history at all. We don't really uh, look at this as um, a very prominent part of history. However, the Seljuk Turks, the very story of the Seljuk Turks has had such a fundamental bearing on today's world. Um, not least of all the fact that the establishment, the eventual establishment of the country of Turkey finds its roots in the fact that the Seljuks invaded Anatolia and, and that Turkic culture was just there from that point onwards. And then also their actions um, exacerbated um, the situation where the Byzantines uh, looked towards Rome for help in terms of saving the Eastern churches, the Eastern Christian churches from Islamic um, dominance, f thanks to the Seljuks. 
and uh, uh, Pope Urban um, saw an opportunity there to um, to gain some wealth and uh, gain some influence over the Christian church as a whole. Uh, the, the whole of uh, Christendom uh, would have been almost at his mercy. So he saw an opportunity there to call uh, for action and therefore... Uh, thanks to the actions of the Seljuk Turks, we see the excuse for the Crusades, um, and uh, which is uh, such an important and fundamental part of medieval history. So the Seljuk Turks story is much more important than one might initially uh, think or know. The Ancient World Cup now, this is uh, becoming quite a popular feature, the Ancient World Cup. Um, this week, we had Group C, uh, where we found the Sasanian Persians, the Philistines, the Gauls, and the Israelites uh, going against each other. Only two can qualify for the next round, and two will be out of the competition. And, um, of course, it all comes down to your votes, and we've got... Um, forums in in various different places now we've got them on the history of the world podcast discussion forum Um, we've got them on facebook we've got them on twitter also jenna osborne opened it up for the history of the world podcast um, unofficial fan group um, and they were voting as well and those votes have been counted so let's find out the results of group c um in last place and not progressing in the competition, with twelve uh, percent of the votes, were were the Philistines. And uh, I'm gonna go. Um, I'm gonna go to the top of the group because, like uh, many of you follow this, will probably be will will probably be aware of of who is likely to have gone through. Um, with forty one percent of the vote, the winners of the group. And going through to the next round were the Gauls. So that leaves two teams. One one more will go through, one will go out. Um, it was a competition between the Sasanians and the Israelites. And um, I can announce that with 24% of the vote and in second place um, are the Sasanian Persians and the Israelites. So they both got exactly the same amount of votes. And um, I'm in a, a situation which I, I actually hadn't thought about um, until until now, uh, where we've got two teams, we've got the same amount of votes, so we can't, we can't split them. So um, we might end up having to have some kind of playoff round, uh, but we're not going to do that now. So as it stands at the moment, neither... The Sasanians or the Israelites have been knocked out of the competition and uh, we're going to have to come back and address that at a later time. So, um, I, I, do you know what? I didn't even realise until I just looked at the results that we had a tie and I, and I thought to myself, hang on, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't provisioned for that. So, um, we do know the goals are through. That, that's one thing that we do know and we know that the Philistines are out. Anyway, so we're going to move on and then, and then we'll come back to that situation and resolve it at some point in the future. Um, but moving on, uh, next week will be Group D. 
Group D. Uh, well, before I move on, actually, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who voted. There were 59 votes, which was the same uh, amount of votes that we had uh, for the ancient Egyptians group, um, which seemed to be very popular. The ancient Egyptians have, have got more votes than anyone in the competition so far. Um, and uh, so there were 59 votes that week and, and there were also 59 votes last week as well. So thank you to everyone who voted. Uh, let's see how, how we get on this week. The, the Group D, this week's group, we've got the Syracusans. Um, interesting there. Um, we've got the uh, the uh, opponents of the, of the Carthaginians before the Punic Wars, when the Carthaginians were... Uh, sort of gaining their power the Syracusans were their main enemy on Sicily um, and of course uh, Syracuse is uh, the uh, the home of um, the birthplace and 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 the, and the sort of the was defended by the by um, Archimedes of course um, later on when Syracuse finally fell to the Romans so um so the Syracusans, very interesting entity. We, we haven't really talked about them or devoted um, any special attention to them throughout the podcast, but uh, here's, their, here's their moment. We've also got the Celtiberians, um, this uh, fascinating fusion of cultures um, with, a, with a Celtic influence, the Iberian indigenous peoples. Um, we don't we don't know a great deal about them other than they were from the Iberian Peninsula and uh, had absorbed some sort of Celtic influence. But they were the, the peoples who, once again, the Carthaginians, uh, came over and started subjugating when they were getting ready for the Second Punic War. Um, also, this group contains the Cushites, who were from the, the Upper Nile, uh, they uh, they ended up um, taking control of the uh, the, uh, the the kingdom of Egypt um, during the first millennium BCE. Uh, they built um, those um, those smaller sized pyramids um, as well, um, not to be confused by the Kushans. They're they're the Kushites. They're distinct Nubians from the Upper Nile, um, very uh, closely affiliated with the Egyptians. And uh, finally, uh, we've got the Franks, who were the the peoples of Northwest Europe, uh, of Germanic origin, who um, also they, they helped and fought against the Romans uh, during their, their final years, and, uh, and, and they established... A Frankish kingdom, which would be the the uh, the origin, the embryo of the modern country of France, um, and uh, yeah, very sort of battle-hardened peoples of of Northwest Europe, the Franks. So uh, that's this week's group: the Syracusans, the Celtiberians, the Cushites, and the Franks. Listener messages and reviews. Firstly, I'd like to open up this section by um, congratulating everyone on their fantastic effort. Um, obviously, we, I mentioned last week that there was a GoFundMe page uh, to support the recovery um, of Nick Barksdale and uh, the man who's behind the uh, YouTube channel, The Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages, and someone who has uh, given great support to the History of the World podcast 
um, during uh, his relationship with with our podcast. Um, he's uh, he's extremely ill at the moment, and um, he's um, we're, we're hoping and praying that he recovers from his illness. In the meantime, um, we've, um, we're thinking about him and his wife and uh, his daughter. And, of course, his wife is pregnant with another child as well. So it's a very, uh, it's a very trying time for the entire family. And uh, as such, um, the, a gentleman called uh, D.W. Draffin, uh, who's a producer who works with Nick, has... Um, has been associated with the startup of a GoFundMe page. Um, quite amazingly, um, there's been over, there's been well over a thousand individual donations, and uh, um, and over forty thousand dollars has been raised uh, to support Nick and his family, which is just mind blowing. Um, you should all be congratulated um, if, like, if any of you have been in, involved in. Um, in doing this for Nick, um, it, it's quite incredible the the generosity that exists within us all um, is is quite incredible. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's a strange thing, isn't it? I, I look at it and I think to myself, well, you know, we've all rallied together, and there, there and don't get me wrong, there are plenty of things that go on in this world that we sh- we probably ought to be rallying around for, and 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 trying to do our best but it really comes down to someone actually sort of getting up and doing something about it uh, someone has done this for Nick and and then we've all sort of risen to the challenge and and uh, now hopefully um Nick and his family have got um a, a good buffer um to be able to sort of you know take relieve some of the stress of their their situation so uh, well done everyone and um you know I've I don't want to keep talking about it, but I was just—I just find it quite um, mind-blowing what what has been achieved there. That's this really is incredible. Um, thank you, and um, you know, best wishes, good luck to Nick, and uh, good luck to uh, you and your family. We all wish uh, we all uh, wish and hope that he'll be back uh, with us and uh, enjoying history alongside us uh, very very soon. Nick was uh, one of the people who uh, was kind enough to um, uh, to suggest a couple of podcast episodes that we made into special episodes. Uh, one of them was on the Picts. The other one uh, was on the Mississippians. So he, he picked out two ancient cultures that he wanted to hear more about. And, and um, I've made a couple of episodes, which if you look back through the archives, you can, you can uh, listen to them both. Um, and um, you can earn that same privilege uh, by contributing towards the History of the World podcast. And when you do, uh, by going to the History of the World podcast.com website, click on the Patreon link and signing up, you can uh, be a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati for the rest of your days. Uh, incredible honour. And uh, <laughs> I, I, well, listen, I, I'll tell you what, there's been a couple more. Um, people who've joined the, the ranks of the History of the World podcast Illuminati this week, Jeff Malloy and Ricard H, uh, both now lifelong members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Thank you so much for your support and thank you to everybody who 
supports the podcast. It's all very much appreciated and, and it really does help to make this podcast uh, even better. Let's uh, nip over and uh, find out who's reviewed us this week. We've got uh, five stars from uh, Jimmy Was A Alien uh, from Australia. He's put, thank you, Chris. Love your podcast. Listen to it as I cook dinner. You have expanded my knowledge on a topic I hold close to my heart. Happy listener from Oz. Cheers, mate. And uh, Mariconi from Canada has put... Um, uh, History of the World podcast, wonderfully entertaining popular history, carefully researched, great narration can be listened to chronologically from the very beginning of human existence. Recommend highly. Well, thank you to both of you uh, for your kind reviews. Now, one of our Illuminati members, Shane Smith, who um, commissioned uh, the special episode on Snorri Stotlison, uh, which we published just over a month ago now, um, has uh, written in saying that he doesn't use Twitter, so he's uh, concerned that he doesn't have the option to vote in the uh, the Ancient World Cup. Well, of course, we publish the, uh, the polls on Facebook as well. Uh, but if you don't do Facebook or uh, Twitter, we also uh, publish the poll on the History of the World podcast discussion forum, so you can actually vote there as well. Um, interestingly enough, another Illuminati member called Eric Young, who's been a long time listener to the podcast, has attempted to address the question of uh, Monk's Mound at Cahokia, uh, which came up in the Mississippian um, culture episode, another special episode. Um, and uh, Shane was interested in whether it was um, whether it was a, a an enhancement of a an existing land feature or whether it was built from scratch. So Eric has attempted to answer that question. So um, if you're interested at all, then do sign up for the History of the World podcast discussion forum. You can find that by going to the History of the World podcast dot com website, clicking on the interact link, and then going directly through to the discussion forum. Um, we also got a message from Zach uh, Patty this week. Uh, who's put in brand new listener, just wanted to say I'm loving this podcast, thank you for this. By the way, I think Chris sounds very much like Michael Caine. Um, it made me think to myself, I wonder if anyone actually has ever gone up to Michael Caine, Sir Michael Caine, and said to him, oh, did you know, Michael, that um, you sound very much like uh, Chris from the History of the World podcast? Um, just wonder if maybe that's ever happened, um, but um, highly unlikely. Anyway, that's it for this week. Uh, next week, we're going to be uh, looking at the Ottomans, um, which are sort of the next chapter in, in the history of uh, the Islamic world, the next great power. Um, the Ottomans, of course, um, rose up from the remnants of all of the uh, drama of uh, the Mongolic invasions of the Middle East. Um and uh, they rose up from the Turkic peoples who uh, still inhabited the lands of Anatolia. And, of course, um, the Ottoman Empire um, came right the way through in history to the 20th century in the First World War. So uh, we're not going to be looking at that next week. But we'll certainly be looking at the rise of the Ottomans and that will set up the theatre by which they uh, they will famously... Uh, besiege Constantinople in the 15th century. Now, 
Uh, it will also set up um, the next series of podcasts where we go all the way back uh, to the fall of the Western Roman Empire and the beginnings of the Byzantine Empire. And um, the Byzantine Empire uh, podcast episodes, it's going to be a four-parter, so we've got lots to get our teeth into, lots of fascinating stories relating to the Byzantines. So um, not least of all, um, a little insight into the Crusades and the establishment of the medieval papacy as well, the papal states and, and that kind of thing. So um, it's going to be a real uh, roller coaster journey through the history of the Byzantines and uh, not to be missed. So, um, But before we do that, it will be the Ottomans, the rise of the Ottomans specifically. And um, we'll look forward to that. Until next week, have a great week, everyone. And be good. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the History of the World website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at History of the World Podcast at mail. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.